Welcome to the Black Theatre History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theatre's African-American history makers. I'm Katie Sane. Today's episode features a conversation I had this spring with playwright, professor, and producer Michael Dinwiddie. Michael Dinwiddie is an award-winning dramatist with a broad and impressive career. His works have been produced in New York, regional, and educational theatre, and Michael has been a playwright in residence at Michigan State University and St. Louis University. In addition to his current position as an associate professor at the Gallatin School at New York University, he has taught writing courses at the College of New Rochelle, Florida A&M University, SUNY Stony Brook, California State University at San Bernardino, and the Universidad de Palermo in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He spent a year at Touchstone Pictures as a Walt Disney Fellow and worked as a staff writer on ABC's Hangin' with Mr. Cooper. Michael is a former board member of the Classical Theatre of Harlem, the Duke Ellington Center for the Arts, and the New Federal Theatre. His honors include a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Playwriting, a Walt Disney Fellowship at Touchstone Pictures, the National Black Theatre's 2013 Spirit Award, NYU's Distinguished Teaching Medal, and He's an inductee into the College of Fellows in the American Theater. Michael is a member of the Dramatist Guild, the Writers Guild of America, the Association for Theater and Higher Education, and is also a past president of the Black Theater Network. Michael and I met in his office at the Gallatin School at NYU just one week before the school and the city shut down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You may hear a few moments where we edited out some students coming in and out of his room. So, Michael, one of the things that we begin every episode with is that I like to speak with all of my guests about their origins and who their mentors are, who their first teachers were. I know that you come from a performance family. Um, so would you talk to us about who who those folks were in your early years, in your formative years? Sure. I was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and I grew up in Tulsa till I was about eight years old, and my family moved to Detroit. And so my formative years were in those two places. And then when I was 21, I moved to New York City. I studied music and drama as a kid. I found out I was a writer. I loved to write plays. I started writing when I was a teenager. And um, I started a theater company in Detroit with Kathy Irvin mm-hmm. uh, called Satori Theater, and we ran mm-hmm. it for five years till basically, you know, till I moved away. My mentors and teachers were very different and in different worlds. In terms of theater, I would say Woody King was one of my mm-hmm. mentors, but another one was a man named Powell Lindsay. Powell Lindsay was one of the founders of Suitcase Theater. He worked with Langston Hughes, and he had a theater in uh, Michigan called Suitcase Theater was made up of young people who traveled. And so when I was 17 years old, I played Langston Hughes and I played the piano and I did a tour of Europe, England, Wales, Germany, Belgium, and Holland, performing in a show called These Truths, which was based on a Langston Hughes, uh, his writing. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my early exposure. And Paul Lindsay was a really interesting character because he had, in the 1930s, been a founder of the uh, it's called the Negro Playwrights Guild in Harlem. And he, had, again, worked with Langston Hughes with the original Suitcase Theater. With um, James Earl Jones' father was in that. He hmm. played the lead role in a show called Don't You Want to Be Free. Hmm. So those are my mentors. You know, Woody King. Um, I'd say in terms of uh, my career, a gentleman named Lauren Rakin. He's a professor here at Gallatin really helped shape me. He wrote my letter of recommendation to go to Tisch School of the Arts. I was in the inaugural class Mm -hmm. of the dramatic writing program and 
that was really an important step for me in terms of my life and career. And then I've been very fortunate. My plays have been done. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, Off-Broadway, West Beth, and Wonder Horse, which has now become New York Theater Workshop, yeah. and La Mama, La Mama. and uh, Crossroads. Crossroads, yeah, Regional Theater as Detroit well. And then Detroit Repertory, Mosaic Youth Theater, uh, Cal State, San Bernardino. I was commissioned to write a play on Scott Joplin, which was done at St. Louis University. So now I just have to learn how to keep my keep the momentum going in my writing because I can get very focused on other things. As you know, I mean, I work with the Black Theater Network. I've been working with the Black Theater Network for years. I'm a consultant planning our next conference in Detroit in yep. 2020, uh, July. And so I'm very much involved with that. And I'm also on the board, the advisory board of the Black Gotham Experience, which is to reconstruct and retell the stories of the histories here in New York City and New York State of African peoples, the kind of the hidden stories. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, I, I'm I'm a very busy person. <laughs> That's the well, best way to say it. You're also, I mean, we, I think many of us know you first and foremost as a playwright, um, but also as a scholar. And well, you've written. He's making a face at me for those on the <laughs> through the internet that can't see the the look that you're giving me. But you've written fairly extensively. Yes, I have. I've, I I'm a contributing editor to Black Masks. I've written on uh, James Street Europe. I've written chapters. In books, I'm considered. I've given lectures on James Reese Europe, who was an African American musician, who was considered very important because he organized the Harlem Hellfighters band, which took jazz to Europe during World War One. And he also organized in 1912 a Carnegie Hall concert of African American music. It was the first time Carnegie Hall. And in 1910, he organized something called the the Clef Club, which was kind of a union for African American musicians in New York who had been playing before in New York. But they were treated as servants. They were expected to clean. They were expected to get whatever paid might come their way. And James Street Europe basically set up a system where these people were treated with respect. U.B. Blake, in fact, called him the Martin Luther King for musicians. <laughs> that gives you an idea of how incredible he was in terms of the period. He was born in 1880 and died in 1919. And so he was really important in American music. You have a lot of work, a lot of your scholarship and a lot of your teaching centers around race and gender and class and all of those things. But one of the things that has always interested me about your research is this constant crossover and back and forth and recognizing the influences between theater and music, and uh, particularly music in Harlem, particularly music that spans uh, massive cultural movements um, that are racially based. I'm curious what continues to lead you back there. The theater comes out of a musical soul. Mm -hmm. That's basically how I think about it. I mean, one of my plays, A Guest of Honor, is about Scott Joplin's lost opera, A Guest of Honor. And he lost it in some ways on two levels because no one wanted to do an opera. Mm -hmm. So no one's really sure if it was really an opera or not. No, No extant versions exist of it. So my play was a story of what happens when you have a vision that is beyond the world you're in. Mm -hmm. Of course, he wrote Tremonitia later, which only ever received in his lifetime a staged reading. It wasn't until much later that it was actually presented. Uh, But Scott Joplin was one of the really seminal forces in changing American music. So the music in America, our music and our entertainment all came together in what has come to be known as minstrelsy. Mm-hmm. And so through minstrelsy, you really had notions of, it really shaped our whole notion of entertainment. I mean, you think of shows like the Ed Sullivan Show, and we think of variety shows, Rowan and Martin. Those are really reincarnated minstrel shows. Mm-hmm. 
uh, without always the racialized aspect that we think of when we think of blackface, when we think of the ways in which the Irish, the Jewish, and the German, and the um, Dutch were stereotyped in the early minstrel shows. So I, I see there's a kind of musicality in American theater that I find quite fascinating. You know, when you think about Langston Hughes and his writing, mm -hmm. he's always trying to write jazz poems, jazz plays. I'm saying jazz with the idea of being open and free. And so I think that's it. Also, I'm a musician. I played ragtime piano. I When I first came to New York, I worked in nightclubs playing Gershwin and Porter and Cole, um, all that stuff. And so that's part of my, my uh, soul. That's my drive now to work on my musicals, to work on the plays that I'm going to do. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to ask for you to, to talk a little bit about your, your own personal musical history. Um, because I'm curious, uh, I, I mentioned your, your mother early on in the conversation um, as another performer who is still performing and doing great things. But My mother's 89 years old <laughs> and she, she performs under the name Chris Lynn in Detroit. And she really localized her career in a really interesting way because she wanted to make sure that her family came first. One of the things you find with a lot of entertainers is that they... In order to have a career, you have to sacrifice a lot of time mm -hmm. with your family. So my mother, which she had opportunities, she was on the first sickle cell telethon here in New York, uh, but that was her only trip to New York. Um, she had an opportunity to perform internationally in Toronto. She turned these things down because she did not want to leave her children. So I feel in some ways very indebted to her vision of taking care mm -hmm. of others, but uh, she had quite a, she's had quite a career uh, in Detroit. She's still performing, but she worked at the Music Hall Jazz Cafe for many years and place called the 101 which is a little hole in the wall downtown Detroit but Bricktown and um, another place uh, called um, well, the rhinoceros yeah the rhinoceros rhino it was called the rhino and so she she's performed at, I mean she Baker's keyboard lounge she's just really performed a lot she's a pianist and a singer and her, that was all her that was her ambition her ambition was to be an actress but her family forbade it she came up in the 50s and so she instead went to college she ended her she earned her master's at Tennessee State University and they had a program under Dr. Thomas Pogue that actually trained people to be actors but also teachers so they ended up with masters in speech and drama Moses Gunn came out of that program mm -hmm. Drury Cox came out of that program Joan Pryor a number of really prominent interesting people in the theater uh, were trained at Tennessee State did she encourage you I mean did she have you take piano lessons were you I mean was that from her influence or was that your choice well actually as a child my real I thought I was going to be a painter or an artist because mm. I started out when I was about six years old my family we lived in Tulsa and we went to visit a place called Philbrook Art Museum okay. which was the mansion of Wade Phillips the founder of Phillips 66 gasoline and mom saw this thing that said you know art lessons for children so she I had two older half-brothers, and one of my brothers, she gave him the check to take to Philbrook to enroll us. And when he got there, they said, oh, are you the Dinwiddie family chauffeur? And oh. he said, no. And they said, well, we've never had colored people here before. And so my brother, being young, left the check there. My mother called him and said, return my check. And they said, oh, no, we've called an emergency meeting of the board. We want It's time for this to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so mom did not want it to happen. But my father said, listen, let's see what happens. And so they called uh, the next day and said, we'd love for you, your son and your daughter. My sister was four oh to come to Philbrook and be part of this. And my mother said, on one condition, that I can come and be there with them. This is during the era of uh, civil rights. Mm -hmm. It's during the era of uh, you know Little Rock and Tulsa. 
was really going through some experiences in terms of integration. And uh, so she went and there was never an incident. I didn't know this story until 40 years later because nothing ever happened. The children were children. We were all children mm -hmm. together and formed wonderful um, friendships. And then three years after, three years later, uh, the NAACP officially integrated Philbrook. Mm. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means we weren't black <laughs> or what. I don't know. But that's, that's what happened. So... So when did you move from visual arts to acting and music? And I'd been taking dance lessons as a child. I took tap dancing and um, stuff like that. And I just was always an expressive child. And so when we moved to uh, Detroit, um, I went to a school and I had a really excellent teacher there, named, a man named Mr. Lundeen. And he, was, uh, he, he taught um, writing, short story writing, which I started to do, but also playwriting and Detroit used to have a contest every year well Scholastic magazine yes and so I would enter and win uh, I have a number I still have my my dictionary that I won <laughs> and you've got a little gold key stuff like that so I because I would write stories I would write uh, short stories and um, Kathy Irvin's father Dr. Irvin took us to see a play and Kathy and I were sitting there the whole time. It was a theater in Detroit called Detroit Rep Repertory Theater. It was a brand new theater. And they had, you know, chairs set up and everything. Detroit Repertory is now mm -hmm. 60 years old. But yeah. at the time, it was a brand new theater. Like 50 years old, because I'm not that old. But anyway. <laughs> and and uh, we looked around and said, we could do this. We could put some chairs up and do a play. And Dr. Irvin said, oh, shut up and watch the play. And so that was a challenge we needed. And so when I was 16 and Kathy was 14, we started the Satori Theater Company in Detroit. So I'm glad that you mentioned Satori because you know I'm fascinated by this part of your history. And I would love for you to tell us, we know the origins now. So talk to me about what this company was, what you did, how old you were while this was happening. Satori started, I was 16, Kathy was 14. And as I said, Dr. Irvin gave us a challenge. And so we like, we can do this. So the, what happened was Kathy went home and she called me and said, I wrote a play. I was like, oh, that's wonderful. So a week later, I called her and said, I wrote a play. <laughs> so we brought our plays together and we said, let's put on our plays. And then we started to collect from our friends actors. And we started with a small company. Her play was called You Must Leave Now. It was about a young girl who dies of a drug overdose. And my play was called Script. And it's about <laughs> a television show that's being written about the black revolution by white men. So, and of course, this, so these two shows... Are there extant copies of these scripts? <laughs> Unfortunately, there are. And at some point, we may let someone see them once, you know, once we're at a point where they can't totally damage our careers. But anyway, we did these plays, and we, we planned to do a one-off, basically, just to do it one night or whatever. And we found a church, Mayflower Church in Detroit, and they had a, a fellowship hall with a stage. Mm -hmm. And so we rented lights. Our parents had to sign for us. We couldn't even drive to get the lights or anything like that. Put on a performance, and we put on two weekend of performances. We, you know, programs and people and all that stuff. And it went so well, we decided to do it again. And then it went so well, we decided to do it again. And then we got contacted by the city of Detroit, and they wanted us. They wanted to give us a contract to perform in the parks, because we were young people. I never knew. We're that. doing these different things, and then we got contacted because there were schools saying we'd like to have a Black History show. So in the 1971-72, we were a traveling company of young African-American and white members. We had white members, too. And um, we would go to different schools, elementary schools, high schools, colleges, and do black history show. What is black? Is black awareness, knowing who you are, knowing where you came from? Nearly 400 years ago, 
our people were brought to this land to be slaves and do the things that slaves do. That was the opening narrative of it. And then we open up and use Julius Lester stuff. We use music from war. We use Langston Hughes. We use, thank God, we didn't know anything about copyright or anything like that. <laughs> but we had a fabulous show and um, everyone really enjoyed it. And we ended up on television in Detroit. We ended up performing on a different show called Haney's People. We performed at the auto show. So Tori became like the young people's theater. In 1973, we were part of the um, Detroit Theater Community Festival. There were like about 40 community theaters in Detroit at the time. Mm -hmm. And Satori, my play the first day, won uh, Best Play, Best Actress, Kathy Irvin, and Best Actor, Taylor Seguiu. And so Satori was flying high. In 75, we were invited to be on the International Theater Olympiad Committee. And Detroit was doing an international conference of theaters from all over the world and performances from Czechoslovakia. It was Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. at the time, places like that. And so Satori was one of the planning groups on this. So we really thought, you know, we were really... And you were 18 by that point. Yeah, yeah I was like, yeah, yeah, a little older. And, and I should say that the second year of Satori, I went to Europe for the summer. That's when I went with the Suitcase Theater and performed, which created really, I didn't realize it at the time, but years later, when I was 21, Satori basically kicked me out. And I was wondering why. I never knew why. And so just recently, I went to ask somebody, and they said, well, you, you left us. We didn't leave you. And so I was really, so I realized that my leaving and going away and performing had been a, taken as a sense of rejection. I always wondered why, you know, Satori kicked me out so, <laughs> out of the company I helped found. So, um, but we, we were very involved with the theater scene there, Concept East Theater, mm -hmm. Ron Milner's Theater, and we were the theater kids. We were written about in uh, Black Digest. They wrote about us. We got reviews in the New York papers. I mean, New York. I mean, the Detroit papers. No, sorry, I do it again. <laughs> we got reviews in the Detroit papers, and we were we were like the famous kids. It's really very interesting. Years later, I met David Allen Greer, and he said, "You know, you guys were doing what I'm doing now." Then he wasn't because he wasn't performing at that and time. And you you know him from college? we went to high school. We went to high school together. And was this at Pro? Mm. It was called Cast Tech. Okay. And uh, Cast Tech was a school that started in 1917. And the idea of the school was it would be a school where you would get such good training that you wouldn't have to go to college. Because a lot of people who were working class couldn't afford to send their children to college. So they said, well, let's have a, it was like a magnet school before the concept existed. Also, Roper School, is that what it is? Roper's a different school. Okay. Roper was for uh, gifted children. Roper City and Country School was, I went there at a different, Cass Tech was my high school. Roper was my junior high. Got it. So David was at Cass Tech. He was in the art curriculum, commercial art. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell the story because my sister Michelle was in class with him and she said that David was not a serious artist. He was not planning to be an artist. He, he, he admitted that he took it because that's where the pretty girls were. So that's why he became a, <laughs> he went into that. I was in performing arts, totally different. And so David, though, drew a, a self-portrait in pencil that was so fantastic. The students who were artists started to question whether or not they were really artists or not. And uh, because he was that talented and that incredible. And I knew his sister, Elizabeth, who still lives in Detroit. So I was in the performing arts curriculum at Cast Tech. Uh, and I was very turned off from the plays they were doing. They were doing big musicals like Hello, Dolly and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And this is the 70s. We were coming out of the 60s. And this is Detroit, which is very radicalized. So our plays were about the revolution, about mm -hmm. drugs, about all kinds of things like that. I wrote a play called Martians Don't Speak English. Don't ask me. I hope there's not an extant copy of it anywhere. Um, and then uh, I wrote a musical with my friend Kenny Hilton Jr., who's passed. It's called Montana Young. About a young man who wants to be a star. He goes off and basically, he doesn't sell his soul, he gives it away. 
And so we wrote music for that, and uh, that was performed on campuses around Michigan. And that was about when I, 76 is when I left and came to New York. I came to New York because I wanted to be in the theater. I'd done three years study at Wayne State University. I'd been in the BFA mm -hmm. theater acting directing program. And I was like, they can't teach me anything else. I know. And I'd done, <laughs> I, I had already worked with the Hillbury, which is a graduate company. I'd done Crooks and Mice and Men. And I did Wesley and Time of Your Life. And I did music for about four or five shows. I okay. composed the music. And so I was like, there's nothing more here for me. And um, so I moved to New York. And... And who did you work with when you got here? The first show I did here, well, as I said, I worked in nightclubs when I first got here playing piano. I worked at a place called Cleo's, which was in, which is where Fiorello's is now on Broadway and 63rd. And at the time, it was run by a man named Howard Saunders, and it catered to the elite African-American clientele. So Diane Carroll would come in with her mm -hmm. husband at the time. Leontin Price would come in as well. Bubbling Brown Sugar was running, so all the cast would come. Josephine Pamis and Bobby Bryant and people like that would come into Cleo's and listen to me play piano, which was quite wonderful and exciting. I should tell the story that uh, I was the house pianist, but Bricktop came to perform there. And oh. uh, so I was privileged to get to hear her perform, to meet her, to sit at the table with her. And uh, I'll tell a funny story. She would do her performance, she was in her Balenciaga gowns and she was glamorous and she's talking through the songs and she has this fantastic pianist who's like really one of the best artists you would ever want to hear. And so she'd say, and now I'm going to sit down and let my piano player play, you know, blah, 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 whatever it was. And so he started playing and it was just beautiful and the room is filled and it's wonderful. And you started to hear the kitchen. And the people in the kitchen oh. were, were moving and doing stuff and everything. And in the middle of it, Bricktop goes, God damn it, what is all that noise? You're so noisy, I can't take it. <laughs> Total silence. You hear one little, one little chink, chink in the kitchen. And then she just sat back and listened to the rest of the music. And I thought to myself, oh, you can do and be whoever you want. Goals. You can be as free as you want if you are who you are. And that's what I have, you know, thought of as being an important lesson in life. Because you would never think of Bricktop screaming, hitting the table and saying, shut up in there, be quiet. And right. I thought, so I can do that if I want to, <laughs> if I ever want to. Bring a little Paris back. <laughs> mm -hmm. But she was quite, she was quite a character. It was wonderful to meet her. And then later, Mabel Mercer came and performed there. So I got to see these really amazing entertainers who were just really from another time, another era, and you got to understand... Um, what it took to hold an audience, and how to really sell a song. You also serve on a number of boards. You advise a number of people and companies and things. I know that you worked with New Federal for a while. Not yeah, I was on the theater. I was on the advisory board. Well, no, I was on the board the of board. New Federal Theater for a number of years. Classical Theater of Harlem mm -hmm. as well. I am now on the advisory board of the Fire This Time Festival. Wonderful. That. And um, and now I'm producing. I'm producing along with. Uh, Do tell us about yes. this new production company. Yeah, we just started this really kind of cool company, and uh, I'm excited about it. Marcia Pendleton is one of my favorite people in the world, and she and John Chevin Foster and I decided that we would start to work on different projects. So we're doing our first project here at NYU. The company is called Gold Tele Productions, mm -hmm. and the whole idea is to do stories that illuminate human experience and show the complexity of who we are as beings and facing the challenges that we all face in life. 
And so we're on a shoestring, and that's fine because we're looking for great projects and great ideas, and we think we have some ourselves, too. Yes. So we're looking forward to that. I will say the thing about producing, though, that no one tells you is that you cannot ever let down your guard. Every yeah. aspect of everything you have to think about mm -hmm. all the time, and you're, and you're responsible no matter what. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this new challenge. I'm going to I'm going to have to balance it against my playwriting because that's really what I want to do for the next 15 years of my life, you know, to really mm -hmm. get my plays, my work out there. I've gotten a lot of plays that don't get produced enough. Right. And so I have to get to um, seeing to my career. I've never really I've been very blessed that I've had wonderful wonderful experiences in terms of work. I mean, I've been in NYU for 22 years, Galveston School. For the last nine years, I've produced the Galveston Theater mm -hmm. Festival, Galveston Theater Lab. I've worked with the Galveston Arts Festival, all these things, and helped other playwrights, nurtured other playwrights, Christopher Diaz, filmmakers like Andrew Levitas and um, Pedro Cristiani. And uh, and it's not, it's, it's just that I also have things I want to say right. and things I want to get out there because no one thinks about the kinds of things I think about in the way I do. I'm very interested in African-American gay culture and the ways in which it is our culture, and the ways in which it's, it's hidden. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to make it okay for kids to figure out who they are. I did not have an easy journey myself, and I was very blessed that I had, I came from a family that ended up being supportive, but they also had to be uh, brought along. And so I want to make sure that my work does that. I really try to make sure that I deal with that. The most recent play I've written is called The Carelessness of Love. Mm -hmm. It's based on the life of Angelina Grimke, yep. who in 1919 fell in love with a woman. And she was from an upper-class African-American family in Washington, D.C. And the play is what happens in a family like that when everything you've been taught of who you are is opposite to who you need to be. That's and so that's, uh, that, that's the work I've had. Woody King has uh, given me couple of stage readings for it and he's talking about producing it. I'm waiting for an option, but once Excellent. that happens, I'll be Woody, even happier. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with Clinton Turner Davis, the director. So. Oh, mm -hmm. perfect. Well, so with that, I think that you have led almost right into the last question that I wanted to ask you is, what do you see changing in black theater? What do you see, uh, this, the last decade and a half have been so dynamic and you've been in this really interesting place of sitting on these boards and working on these committees and creating your own work and what do you what do you see being the most dynamic changes for where we've come and what do you see that we're waiting to to have happen well you know dominique morisot i interviewed her a couple of months ago and she said she said you know i'm looking around seeing all these really talented people doing all this great work and i think it's just so wonderful and i just hope that it's not the flavor Mm -hmm. of the month and of the moment. I hope that it's really the beginning of a kind of sustained movement. Now, for the last five years or so, we've seen this incredible burgeoning talent of African-American dramatists and music and everything in a way that's really quite wonderful. And you see kind of a, a whole universe of artists supporting each other, mm -hmm. working together, doing things. And so there's no, no longer the sense of isolation, I don't think. And there's also, you, you see African-American culture being depicted on Broadway, off-Broadway, regional theater, etc. You know, we have to give August Wilson thanks for a lot of that. But we also have to think about the playwrights like Charles Fuller mm -hmm. and Intozaki Shange and Katori Hall. 
Um, I mean, there's so many I could even, Lorraine Hansberry, you know, I mean, you know we got to go all the way back is, to, I mean, you know, but, um, you know, there, Willis Richardson, people we don't even think about her name, that who were really the pioneers. I mean, you think about Negro Ensemble Company, the classic Negro Ensemble Company, and the uh, the uh, modern or more recent, the more recent. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like, because I, I want to, you know, but things like that, <clears throat> you don't want that pettiness in it. You'd want people to understand this was all part of a confluence. It's all really important. You know, I think about Erich McMillan and uh, Project One Voice. You know, it's mm -hmm. going into its thirteenth year of doing one play everywhere, all over the country. And bringing consciousness to African American writers like Alice Childress, yeah. and you know you could just name them and name them and name them, but unfortunately, in our higher institutions of learning, we're not getting exposed to American culture, and American culture is very much connected to um, African and Indigenous and Asian cultures as well. That's what really that's what makes our country so fantastic. You know, Henry um, David Henry Wong w was first produced by Woody King. And um, I don't think down I knew at that. down at uh, New Federal Theater, Dancing the Railroad was produced there. So I never knew that. Yeah, it's really quite fascinating when you start to really dig and see. And then Joe Papp brings it up, you know. And Joe Papp does Color Girls with Woody. And so there's there have been partnerships over time. There have well, really been interracial and interracial. Mother Courage. Yes, of many course. How many years ago when Intizaki exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So all these things, we the more educated you get, the more you realize there's a lot of work to do. But a lot of the work has been done. The groundwork is done. But if you don't turn the dirt, if you don't turn the soil, you don't know what's there. So part of my journey is really to be a conduit and a bridge for these different worlds coming together and connecting. So on that, my final question to everyone is always, as we build, I'm building from those with whom I speak in terms of the podcast, but if there was one black play that we should add to the canon, what do you think would be your choice? It's impossible. But the one that I would say that was just uh, life-altering for me was No Place to Be Somebody mm. by Charles Gordon. Yep. Then number two, never River Niger, and then number three. I mean, it's like I just keep going and keep going. You know, it's like I know, I mean, it's, it's hard. You know, but no place to be somebody because I'd never seen those characters before. I'd never seen that world before, and I don't see it that much anymore. Yeah. And so that would be the one. No place to be somebody, by Charles Gordon. Well, thank you. Thank you. I really you. appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking. Thanks with for us. hanging out in my office. Thanks for coming down here. It's been my pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. That was Michael Dinwiddie playwright, professor, and producer in a live interview at his office in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and edited by SB Studios. Our music is by Kaya Cater Hurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be purchased wherever you like to support artists' careers by actually paying for their work. If you like the work we're doing here and want to support the podcast with a fiscal contribution, or for more information about episode commissions and sponsorship, reach out to us at blacktheaterhistory.com. That's theater with an R-E. If you're old school, you can always find us on Facebook at Black Theater History Podcast and follow us there for updates and information. Thank you to all of you, our listeners. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on iTunes and to leave us a review there. Your feedback will help us get the podcast in front of other folks who would be into it. 
We're all in this together, friends. We've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>